You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 27 and 28. We'll start in chapter 27 and work our way into chapter 28 this morning. Might not be immediately apparent why why this title, just at the beginning of our text, but by the end I'm sure you'll know why I titled it this. The sermon this morning is called The Gate of Heaven. The Gate of Heaven. We'll be in verses 41 of verse 41 of chapter 27 and then going through verse 22 of chapter 28. In our walk through Genesis, Jacob now has the birthright and blessing from Isaac his father, making him excuse me, making him the heir to the covenant promises of Isaac's father Abraham. But Jacob seems to have obtained all that through his own craftiness and, and his schemes of his mother. <laughs> he's manipulated, he's deceived, and he's not yet a fit heir of God's covenant with Abraham. And furthermore, Jacob doesn't seem to grasp the significance of what he now has. For all we can tell at this point in Genesis, Jacob has simply been seeking to gain the best position in the family and a good inheritance. His focus has been on navigating these human relationships in his life. It seems to be a very horizontal focus for him. A direct relationship with the God of his fathers doesn't seem to have been his focus, at least as it ought to have been so far. But we'll see in our sermon text this morning that God confronts chosen sinners with his awesome presence and his amazing promises. God loves when a sinner is not seeking him to come and show up in that sinner's life in an awesome way. So that's the big idea. God confronts chosen sinners with his awesome presence and amazing promises. We'll unfold the text first and then we'll uh, further apply it. But it'll take a little while to unfold the text this morning. First of all, we'll read verses 41 through 46 in chapter 27, where we see Esau's malice and Rebekah's plan. Starting in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise. Flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land... What good will my life be to me? So this is, of course, just after Jacob deceived his father Isaac into getting the blessing that Isaac had meant to give to Esau. Esau had already sworn that Jacob would have his birthright, but he goes back on that oath as he wants to. He tries to accept the blessing from his father Isaac. Isaac apparently knows the oracle from God from the boy's birth that the older will serve the younger, but Isaac ignores that until, he, until God thwarts his plans. <laughs> and uh, through Jacob and Rebekah's plotting, Jacob did get the prophetic blessing from his father. So now he has the birthright and the blessing, but Esau hates him for it. And so... Esau is saying to himself, the idea is that these are the thoughts of his heart that apparently are expressed in words to somebody that Rebecca overhears. Uh, his thoughts are, my dad isn't going to live very long. 
He was actually wrong about that, but apparently his dad was feeble. He thought, my dad will soon die, and so the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then, once my dad's gone, it'll be the right time to kill Jacob. So Rebecca hears about this plan. Esau isn't very good at keeping his thoughts to himself, apparently. Kind of fits his boisterous personality, honestly. So Rebecca, just as she started this whole thing in the first place, telling Jacob, obey my voice, do what I say, deceive your father. Now she says, obey my voice, you need to run. You need to go, at least for a while, the idea is maybe a few days, (laughs) It's going to be 20 years. Go for a while to my brother Laban, up north in Haran, where I came from. You'll be safe there. Stay there until your brother cools off and he forgets what you did to him. Oh, what Jacob did to him. Okay. As if she didn't do it too. But, um, I'm sure she's, she's keeping it under wraps, what her role was in all this. So she says, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? In other words, probably what she's saying is she's afraid that she'll lose Jacob when Esau murders him and she'll lose Esau when justice, when justice hunts down Esau. Uh, she could lose both of her sons in one day, essentially. Derek Kidner here says, Rebecca's quick grasp of situations and characters shows itself again. First in her recognition that she must lose Jacob to save him, and then in her, her persuasive handling of both son and father. In Jacob, she aroused enough alarm, hope, and compunction to uproot him, home lover as he was. Remember, Jacob's the one who likes, he's not a man of the field like Esau. He's not used to being just out there on his own. He, he likes to stay closer to the tents. He's a homebody. Um, it's going to take a lot to get Jacob to go hundreds of miles away on his own. <laughs> but his, his mother knows how to to uh, tell him he has to do it. Uh, Kidner again. Yet, he must not go as a fugitive, but with his father's backing and to the shelter of her family. And Isaac must preferably suggest the idea himself. For this, her broaching the subject of Jacob's marriage was a masterstroke. It played equally on Isaac's self-interest and his principles. The prospect of a third Hittite daughter-in-law and a a distracted wife would have unmanned even an Abraham. Rebecca's diplomatic victory was complete, but she would never see her son again. That's what Derek Kidner says. So again, Rebecca's already told Jacob, you have to get out. But they also need a good reason for him to just leave. So Rebecca um, uses a real issue to get Isaac to actually send his son away for a different reason. Again, remember from... Earlier in Genesis, um, chapter 26 at the end, Esau had married two Hittite women who it said made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And it seems like Esau to this point is oblivious to how bad this is, to the fits his wives are giving his parents. But it's not just Rebekah that they are making life bitter for it's it's Isaac too. Isaac doesn't like Esau's wives either. And so Rebecca says, look, Jacob needs to get married. And if he stays around here, he might marry a Hittite also. He might marry another one of these godless um, bad women. (laughs) And then what good will my life be to me? Suggesting to Isaac that he would have a harder life because of another daughter-in-law like that, and because his wife would just be in despair. So that brings us to chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Isaac's blessing and Jacob's departure. Let's read in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, And take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. 
May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Isaac's attitude has clearly changed towards Jacob, even though he knows Jacob did wrong in deceiving him to get the blessing. Nevertheless, as we saw last time in Genesis, Isaac sees the hand of God in all of this. He knows he was fighting God in certain ways too. And so he he has accepted the fact that Jacob is God's choice as the heir in the family, as the preeminent one in the family through whom the promises to Abraham will come. So you, you, you get that tone here as um, Isaac gives a genuine blessing to Jacob, knowing it's Jacob. He tells Jacob to go to Padan Aram, which just means the plain of Aram. It was that area where the city of Haran was, northwest Mesopotamia. It's where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled. That was Rebekah's home area and uh, where her family still lives. And Isaac rehearses here the blessings God had promised to Abraham and then to him and uh, tells Jacob, these are now your blessings. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Isaac here is is directly, as John Currid says, he's directly linking this blessing with God's blessings of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17. For one thing, he uses that name God Almighty, El Shaddai, that God had used to introduce himself in Genesis 17. I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect, he said to Abraham. And then also this blessing on Jacob centers on two things nationhood he's going to be a company of peoples and land the promised land that's a little ironic because jacob has to leave the promised land to get a wife so he can be fruitful and come back and one day his descendants will fill this land but he has to leave for now and there's this use of the term seed or offspring may he give the blessing of abraham to you and to your offspring with you Again, that theme of the line of the seed of the woman being continued through the person of Jacob. It's through him and his descendants that the Messiah will come. It's interesting, Jacob, Isaac rather, uh, uses this unusual phrase, may you become a company of peoples. That word company, that's that's, um, an early instance in the Old Testament of the term for the church or congregation of that becomes the church or congregation of Israel the kahal of Israel it has the idea of a lot of people but also of coherence that they're one group together a company an assembly of peoples Greek Old Testament it would have been the the um, uh, they translated a synagogue of nations. <laughs> and this is, of course, in line with what God had told Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So there's this, this far-reaching idea, both in its Old Testament context of the 12 tribes of Israel as a nation one day, coming from Jacob. And then one day, um, you could say in an antitypical way almost, one day, uh, the New Covenant Israel as well, which is truly a, a church, an assembly of people from all nations. But again, the last part of that blessing is the most important here. The promise of the land. 
And Jacob, as, as Andrew Steinman says, will spend 20 years away from this land, up north. But God's promise will bring him back to this land. And Jacob will end his life in Egypt. But even there, he'll cling to the promise of the land of Canaan. And he'll be buried back in the land. Moving on to verses 6 through 9, chapter 28, then we see Esau's reaction to Jacob's commission. I told you it'd take a while to unfold this text, but we're moving through it. Verses 6 through 9, Esau's reaction to Jacob's commission. Verse 6, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, duh, <laughs> he finally gets it, okay. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. By the way, in case some cross-reference later and get confused, um, the names of Esau's wives are confusing because Mahalath here is called Basimuth, chapter 36, verse 3, and one of Esau's Hittite wives is also called Basimuth in a different text in Genesis, but then she's called Ada elsewhere, Genesis 36, 2. So one guess people have is that Basimuth may have been a nickname, meaning balsamic or fragrant. It may have been a nickname for more than one wife. Um, so anyway, there's some confusion there. But the basic thing is, Esau had already had two Hittite wives who were no good. Now he takes a third wife to make it all better. <clears throat> Esau is pretty smart. But he wants this, remember? He wants the blessing. He's too late. He wants a blessing from his father Isaac. So he's still maneuvering even though he's, he's failing. Huh. Maybe part of this whole big picture is that they don't like the wives I chose. It dawns on him. Well, maybe if I marry into Abraham's larger family through his son Ishmael, that'll fix everything or make it better at least. So that's what he does. He goes to Ishmael's clan, though Ishmael himself has probably passed away at this point uh, if you compare the, the dates. But... He goes to the clan of Ishmael, to the Ishmaelites, and he um, well, he marries his cousin. As, as his father had instructed Jacob to go marry one of his cousins, essentially, um, Esau says, well, I can marry a different cousin, and we'll see how this turns out. And I'm still here. Jacob's off somewhere up north. Maybe Dad will like me better now. Derek Kidner says, while Esau took the point, his attempt to do the approved thing was, like most religious efforts of the natural man, superficial and ill-judged. To take a third wife, even though an Ishmaelite was better than a Hittite, was hardly the way back to blessing. Or Matthew Poole, the old commentator from the 1700s, says, he thought by this means to ingratiate himself with his father, and so to get another and a better blessing, but he takes no care to reconcile himself to God nor observes his hand in the business. In other, word again, in other words, again, Esau is not seeking God. He's just trying to manipulate his relationships with people to get what he wants. Well, we leave Esau for a while, and we follow Jacob up north on his journey. And here's the, the real point of the whole sermon text today, and the... the, the um, it's a really, really one of these high points in the book of Genesis of God revealing himself. Verses 10 through 22, we see the Lord's promises and Jacob's vow. We'll just read verses 10 through 17 to begin with. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder, or you could translate that, a stairway, 
set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, going up and down between heaven and earth. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. We'll pause there. It says Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And this is a well-known north-south travel route through Palestine. We'll find out later. It's a place that will later be called Bethel. Um, sort of the spine of the hill country, right, in, uh, going up uh, north and south in the land of Canaan. This is the same route Abraham traveled to Beersheba, and so Jacob is retracing Abraham's route the opposite direction, back to Haran. But it's very careful, the way the story is unfolded, the, uh, Moses is very careful to not reveal where this was at first. He just says it's... Um, he came to a certain place, stayed there that night because the sun had set, emphasizing this was a randomly chosen spot by Jacob based on where he was at that time. And the sun was going down, so he happened to stop there. Totally unimportant in Jacob's mind where he was. That's the point. Then he puts the stone either as a either as a pillow or sort of or a headrest behind his head of some sort um, that's not too important just the, it's important there was a stone there that later he uses for something different he goes to sleep and then he has this dream that God gives him as God often communicated by means of dreams to his prophets in the Old Testament days and what does Jacob see? Right where he is, there's a, there's a, we often call it Jacob's ladder, but really it's probably a stairway. In any case, it's a portal, it's a, it's a, a means of accessing heaven and earth. It's between heaven and earth. It's set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, uh, this word behold, look is used here for dramatic effect. And look, there's angels of God coming down on it and going back to heaven on it. And look, the Lord stood above it. <coughs> Excuse me. As if angels weren't fantastic enough, Yahweh is here. And the Lord, the Lord speaks to Jacob with not a hint of rebuke, not a hint of judgment. It's all grace pouring out in what God says to Jacob. Now, uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, this is one of the few places in, in Genesis that it actually mentions the angels as angels. <laughs> Angels just means messengers. So it came to have a special meaning, of course, of, of heavenly beings, not of our, not of our race, um, who are God, function as God's messengers, his dignitaries, his, his uh, servants, uh, for various purposes. They, they do his bidding from the heavenly court. That's, so the word angel really speaks of their function. And the obvious picture, as one commentator said, is that God's retinue leaves his presence 
in order to carry out his work on earth and then returns to him for further directions. That's why they're going up and down between heaven and earth. And later, the angels of God, one of the few other places in Genesis that that they're called such, uh, later we'll see them camping out, protecting Jacob and his family when they return to this land. But again, as if that weren't fantastic enough, there's, there may even be a contrast here between the angels on God's errands to the earth at large and the Lord dealing in person with Jacob. The Lord himself speaks directly to Jacob. No matter what else is going on on the earth, and there is always a lot going on on earth, and it's all part of God's plan, and his angels are functioning in some fashion in relation to those plans, no matter what else is going on on earth, this is the most important thing to the Lord right now. The line of the seed, Jacob, on whose line hang all God's redemptive promises. So God speaks directly to Jacob. And the promises God gives to Jacob here are very similar to the ones he made to Abraham in Genesis 13. And the wording is almost exactly alike. There in in, uh, chapter 28 and verse 13, he declares himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac. He says, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Jacob doesn't have to take his father's word for it. God is telling him directly. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. That is, as he had said to Abraham, so numerous that you can't count them. And you'll spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. That's exactly what God had told Abraham in Genesis 13. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then God says his presence will be with Jacob. I'm with you and I'll keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In some ways, this is even more dramatic than when these promises were made to Abraham. Abraham at least had a wife at the time. Jacob doesn't even have a wife yet. And he's being promised descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. So God is telling Jacob, you will be successful on this mission because I'm with you. Derek Kidner again says, this is a supreme display of divine grace, unsought and unstinted. Unsought, for Jacob was no pilgrim or returning prodigal, yet God came out to meet him, angelic retinue and all, taking him wholly by surprise, unstinted. For there was no word of reproach or demand, only a stream of assurances flowing from the central, I am the Lord. To spread from the past to the distant future, I was Abraham's God, I'll be your God. And all the families of the earth will be blessed in you and your offspring. And from the spot where Jacob lay to the four corners of the earth and from his person to all mankind... So no wonder Jacob expresses profound awe. Notice Jacob's first reaction when he wakes up. The first thing Jacob marvels about is not the promises themselves. It's the person of God. It's first of all the one who had been encountered at this place. Not with the things that were promised. That's not the first thing that drew his attention. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord, Yahweh, is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He didn't wake up and say, Woohoo! This is what I've been after the whole time, and God just gave it all to me. Don't you just love God's gifts? Jacob was afraid. God had talked directly to him. And it's like, I, I, I just chose this random spot, and here's the gate of heaven. So, what did he do? Let's read starting in verse 18. 
So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What's the pillar and the oil about? Well, that's that's pretty um, standard as... Um, well, the, the pillar is, a, is like a memorial being set up. Some people will see it ever after that and say, that rock didn't get there that way on its own. Someone put it there upright. And so it's, it's a memorial stone. It's a monument. <clears throat> and then the oil speaks of consecration. He's, uh, just as people will later be consecrated by anointing them with oil. But Jacob is consecrating this, this pillar, this stone, as a memorial to his encounter with God here. And now we find out that this is actually the same place where Abraham had built an altar to the Lord before, and apparently it seems like the same place where he still was in Genesis 13, when God had given Abraham almost the identical promises that he gave to Jacob here. That was Bethel, though it wasn't called that yet. But it's Jacob who gives the place its name of Bethel house of God. John Currid thinks that the change of the place name is also important, referring to what it used to be called. He says, Luz probably derives from a verb that means to turn aside or depart, but when used figuratively, it means to be crafty, cunning, devious. The name Bethel means the house of God. He says, the wordplay involved may reflect the beginning of a change in Jacob's life. That is, he is now going to turn away from deception as a way of life and move to God. The event of the dream, therefore, appears to be the spiritual turning point in the life of Jacob. That's a possibility. Um, that is, that the name even of Luz is important. But I do think for other reasons, this is definitely a spiritual turning point. Now, when Jacob makes this vow to God... Uh, a lot of people have taken this, I think, the wrong way. (laughs) Um, These kinds of vows, and this is kind of a standard vow formula you see throughout the Old Testament. These kinds of vows weren't made to coerce God into granting something, but it was stating how the person making the vow would demonstrate gratitude to God if he graciously provided a particular favor. The focus was gratitude, not not uh, coercing God. And and his vow underscores, as Victor Hamilton says, how utterly dependent Jacob is upon his God. He who so easily and callously manipulated his brother and father is now pictured as one who is completely beyond his own resources and at the mercy of another. What he saw once was to Jacob, Jacob now is to God. In contrast to what he did with Esau, Jacob cannot manipulate God. He's he's stressing the fact that, yes, God, I am entirely dependent on you for the food I'm going to eat, for the success of getting a wife, for coming back to this land in safety. Yeah, I can't do that. God, you're going to have to do that. And some actually argue that that, uh, this should be translated a little differently. Um... Rather than having, um, well, let's see, I'll back up. Uh, Some say the Lord shall be my God should be uh, part of the if, not not the then the Lord shall be my God. uh, So I'll I'll read the way this would be translated if it's, it's true. Some think Jacob is saying, if the Lord God is with me and keeps me in this way in which I am going and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I return in peace to the house of my father, and the Lord becomes my God, then this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be the house of God. And all which you give me a tenth, I will give to you. 
But again, I think it's right to see that Jacob is not an unconverted man here, still debating whether or not he's going to be on God's side and making a, a trying to make a bargain here. That's not his tone. In fact, I think this is the first place in Genesis where Jacob's faith is clearly seen. So I, I tend to think that Bethel is the scene of Jacob's true conversion, perhaps, the circumcision of his heart. This is God coming to Jacob in unmerited favor and creating a living faith within him. And Jacob makes this vow that's it's the standard sort of vow you see people like Hannah in the Old Testament making. If God will do this, I'll be so grateful. And this is what I'll do in thanksgiving back, God. <clears throat> and there's this interesting wordplay even on the idea of a house. Um, he says, this is the house of God. And then he says, if God will bring me back safely to my father's house, if he'll bring me back to my father's house in peace, then this will be a house for God in the promised land. This will be God's sanctuary. This will be a place of worship when I get back. And here's the, I think it's the second reference in the Old Testament to tithing. How will Jacob express his thanks to God when God fulfills his promises to him? He'll give a tenth. That's where we get the word tithe from. He'll give a tenth back to God of all that God gives him because he realizes anything he gets is going to be from God. He'll give back a tenth to God. As Matthew Poole says, this would be to be laid out in God's service and for sacrifices and for the use and benefit of those who will attend upon sacred things and also for the relief of the poor and needy that God has substituted in his place. The idea of the tithe, the point is, even before God gave the law through Moses, the idea of a tithe was, I'm giving this to God to be used in his worship and for the good of those who need it, his people. Remember where we saw the tithe once before this? Remember where that was? Genesis 14. Abraham and Melchizedek. Where Abraham came back with spoils of war that God had given him the victory. And he gives a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, the, the priest of God. To be used in the worship of God. And to support that priesthood of Melchizedek. So this tenth is a token, as Hamilton says, of Jacob's relationship with God. Here is evidence that Jacob is serious about his relationship with God. He commits himself to tithing. Now, this was seems to have been a voluntary custom before it was directly commanded that we know of. Um, it's interesting to see that the Pharisees later make tithing sort of a... Um, I don't know, they have this obsession with it where they have to get an exact tenth of their of their herbs and even give that to God. Jesus said you're so concerned about tithing your herbs, but you aren't considered concerned about the weightier matters of the law. <clears throat> but the principle of proportionate giving, giving in proportion to what God's given me, uh, that's upheld even in the New Testament. We ought to respond to God in proportion to what he's given to us. It's a very natural response of thanksgiving for grace. And one commentator even notes that the promise of a tithe here shows a change in Jacob's character from a grasper to a giver. For the first time, we see Jacob focused not on getting something, but on giving something. It's interesting. Alan Ross says, those who fully realize God's gracious provision, those whom the word of God has powerfully impressed, will respond with consecration and commitment. For there is no reverential fear, no commitment or no devotion. There is probably very little apprehension of what the spiritual life is all about. That is, if you say you've met God, if you say God has stepped into your life and made you his own, but you're flippant about it, 
There's no response of consecrating yourself to God and to his work. Um, That doesn't sound genuine. If you really have met the living God, it's going to change you and it's going to, if you've met, had a, if you have had an encounter with God's grace, that's going to produce abundant thanksgiving and worship. You're not going to be someone that has to get, be dragged to church on Sunday, week after week, because it's just a chore. You're not going to be someone who, who is, who really doesn't want to, to give your stuff. To God's service. <laughs> no, you're going to say, this encounter with God is the most important thing in my whole life. What should I do in response? What's, what's only right that I do for God? I'll give my, my own self, my body, as a living sacrifice to God. That's my spiritual service of worship. That's the heart of a believer. So, again, Andrew Steinman, God's first appearance to Jacob takes him by surprise. He was not seeking God's presence, but God was seeking Jacob to grant him a threefold blessing as he left the promised land. In response to God's pledge to him, Jacob vows to honor him. Here we see Jacob motivated not by any of God's demands, but by God's grace. Notice, no one's making Jacob do any of this. And God didn't say, look, Jacob, I have a list for you to to complete here so that I can bless you. God simply stepped in and said, Jacob, here are my promises to you. Period. That's grace. And then Jacob responds to grace. Well, again, the big idea as I said before, is that God confronts chosen sinners with his awesome presence and his amazing promises. His awesome presence and his amazing promises. And that's your story if you know Jesus Christ, isn't it? Let's apply the theme a bit, just in in three, three ways, looking at the diamond from three sides. First of all, there's this general biblical principle we see worked out here that God reveals himself to sinners who were not seeking him. Almost reminds us a little bit of Jesus stopping Saul of Tarsus in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Though Jacob was not on a mission bent on evil and persecuting the people of God, Uh, Jacob was certainly just on his own road doing his own thing, not looking for God specifically. But God met him where he was. Romans 3 tells us, verse 10, it quotes various Old Testament texts to tell us what we are like naturally before God changes us by his grace. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is, by God's perfect standards, not by our own relative standards, no one does good, let alone seeks God. Not the true God. And yet, though we don't naturally seek God, God does seek out sinners on whom he sets his sights to save. And when God seeks out a sinner, and by the way, part of the evidence of that is that someone is stirred up to seek the Lord. (laughs) Because God's opening their heart. But when God does step into a sinner's life to reveal himself, how does God reveal himself? Well, he reveals himself in his son, Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, who is himself God, 
because he is of the same essence as the Father. He reveals perfectly who the Father is. The way we see God is to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is. And in John 1, verses 43 through 51, I want you to turn there, John chapter 1. We see Jesus refer to Jacob's ladder in an unusual way. And I think this is very much to our purpose. John 1, starting at verse 43. This is early in Jesus' ministry. And again, the theme, it's in the same chapter where we just read that the only begotten Son of God makes known the Father. He reveals God to men. So at the end of that chapter, Jesus is calling disciples to himself. In verse 43 it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, There's some humor here, I think, because Nathanael had a very low opinion of anyone from Nazareth. And Jesus looks at him and says the best thing he could say about him. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, or Amen, Amen, I say to you, you, and now he addresses all the disciples in front of him, because in the Greek, it's very specific, it's plural. You, in the South they'd say y'all. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he saying? He's referring, obviously, first of all, he called Nathanael an Israelite indeed, referring to the, the good name God gave Jacob. He renamed him as Israel. A man in whom there is no deceit. Then he refers to the dream Jacob had of this stairway between earth and heaven. This point of access to God and this means by which saving help comes down to man. And he says, I am the staircase. I am the way, the link between heaven and earth. Or as H.C. Leupold, the old Lutheran, said, Christ is the perfect embodiment of continual communion with the Father in heaven. You want to speak with God. You want to know God. You want to have an unbreakable link with God, bond with him. You want to get to God it's Jesus to whom you must go. It's Jesus you must ascend, you must climb. And furthermore, when we were not seeking God, God came down to us in the person of Jesus. He came down to earth to be God with us. Jacob had said, this is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Well, Jesus also declares himself in the very next chapter of John's gospel to be himself the temple of God. The place of communion with God, of meeting God, and the place of atonement where sin is taken out of the way. And he is the door. He is the gate of heaven. That's who Jesus is. So we shouldn't be surprised when John and when Jesus in John 14, verse 6, famously says, when the disciples ask, what, 
we don't know where you're going. You say you're going away, and, and we don't know where you're going or how to get there. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The way he can be the mediator, the go-between between God and men, is that he was given as a ransom for undeserving sinners. The payment for their sins in their place when he died on the cross and had the wrath of God poured out on him which our sins deserved. I know most of you have heard this before, but this isn't an isolated truth that will just be your entrance into Christianity. This is what it's all about. And this is what all Scripture points to. Jesus is the way to God. And so, second, we've said that God reveals himself himself to sinners who were not seeking him. And we added that that happens in Christ. So second, God pledges his presence to sinners who were far from him. As God told Jacob, I am with you and you're not going to get rid of me. I'll be with you wherever you go and I'll keep you, meaning I'll guard you. And I'll make sure I will not leave you until I've done everything I promised you. That's our promise, too. That's what God has promised us as well. Even before we are physically present in God's visible glory in heaven. God is with us and he sends out his angels as ministers to those who are to inherit salvation, the scripture says. Though we cannot see it, that's the reality. All heaven's court is on your side if you are his. Though you don't deserve it. And though you used to be far off from God and have no relationship with him, now he's with you if you're in Christ. When Jesus, <clears throat> well, when an angel spoke to Joseph about naming Jesus, he said, she will bear a son, Matthew one twenty one, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <clears throat> and Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Paul says to even Gentile Christians who weren't even in the old covenant with God, they had nothing to do with the true God. He says in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time, You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. A little further down in that text, once it says that God, that Jesus reconciled us in his body on the cross to God. It says that God is now making us his house. It says Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or you could say the house of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the house of God. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is certainly with us because he is within us, and he's among us as the church. He's made his dwelling with us 
and he'll never leave us. That also makes our entire lives holy ground. That means we ought to be in reverent awe and fear of this one who lives with us. And everything about our lives has to change if God is right here in a special way with his people. But it gives us great confidence, too, as it gave to Jacob. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Third and last, God lavishes his promises on sinners who do not deserve them. It's not just that he's with us, but he has made uh, he has made the most unimaginably good promises to us. And they're so vast and beyond our comprehension. But he showed up in our lives, if we believe in Christ, and he declared the gospel to us, his gospel promises. And they're ours, not for anything we do for God, but simply by clinging to them in faith. God lavishes his promises on his promises on sinners who do not deserve them. <clears throat> because as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1:15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, he says. But as Peter wrote 2 Peter 1, God by his own glory and excellence has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God didn't tell us to clean ourselves up first and then get his promises. He gave us his promises to clean us up, to cleanse us from our sins, to free us from them. God didn't wait until Jacob had fixed his life God stepped in with his promises and that's how he began to change Jacob and again this is all in Christ 2 Corinthians 1 for all the promises of God find their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory we could never deserve or merit what God promises us, but there is one who has obtained an eternal inheritance by his own merits and works. <clears throat> one who, as we said, is a stairway to reconcile us to God, in whom we are promised all that heaven has to give. If you haven't caught it yet, that's the whole point of the sermon. He is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who's taken away our sins. And he's fit us for glory as heirs of God. And that's why the heavenly court sings what it does about the Lamb in Revelation 5. With this I close. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, addressing Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Worthy are you, while no one else is worthy, <laughs> to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. All God's promises to us are yes in Christ because, no, we didn't earn it, but Christ earned it. And so he is worthy to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And we will share that forever with him. And it's all of grace. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you taken him seriously? Have you tried to get to God some other way? On your own terms? 
if you have, that's a pitiful way to, pitiful thing to attempt. Come to God through Jesus. He is the only way to God and to bring God's blessings down for you, and you cannot earn that. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, please transform us as we gaze on your glory in your Son. We know the gospel transforms us, not first of all by telling us what to do, but whom to trust. Please transform us by your grace so that we do become different people. So that our old ways of deceit and conniving and selfishness and pride fall away. Make us givers rather than graspers. Make us worshipers rather than people focused only on earthly things. Help us for Jesus' sake, Father, and we know that you delight to do everything for us because of him, because he is worthy of all you could possibly give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.